0: Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for uh, today's panel. In his opening keynote last evening, David Blight highlighted the current Frederick Douglass renaissance. Douglass the man, myth, and memory are variously invoked and pressed into service in conversations that span the political spectrum as the American public continues to wrestle with the antinomies of America's experiment with democracy. A protein Douglas, whose life spanned the long 19th century, is remembered in the opening decades of the 21st century to continue the unfinished work of democracy. But who is this Douglas? A Douglas removed from the 19th century and occupying the problem space of now? Which Douglas and why? Perhaps the concluding words from Blight's award winning. Biography best captured the spirit animating our returns to a Douglas in this moment of deep antagonism and angst. Douglas, Blight writes, was the prose poet of America's and perhaps of a universal body politic. He searched for the human soul, envisioned through slavery and freedom and all of their meanings. There had been no other voice quite like Douglas's. He inspired adoration and rivalry, love and loathing. His work and his words still wear well. What shall we make of our Douglas in our time? The problem of the 21st century is still some agonizingly enduring combination of legacies bleeding forward from slavery and color lines. Freedom, in its infinite means, remains humanity's most universal aspiration. Douglas's life, and especially his words, may forever serve as our watch warnings and our unending search for the beautiful, needful thing. Blight's elegance draws our attention to the critical challenge of his question. What shall we make of our Douglas and our own time. Today we have three distinguished scholars who will offer us their thoughts in wrestling with this question that grounds the theme of our conversation, Frederick Douglass's America and ours. Today joining us is Lee Foyt, who is an associate professor of history at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York, and the author of Women in the World of Frederick Douglass. Her work focuses on women and race in the 19th century, and her previous publications include Southern Womanhood and Slavery, a biography of Louisa S. McCord, and she is currently writing Given Her Time, a biography of Sally Hemings for classroom use. One of the leading historians of 19th century America, Jim Oakes has an international reputation for path-breaking scholarship. He is a distinguished professor in history at the City University of New York Graduate Center, where he writes about slavery, anti-slavery and capitalism. His most recent book to be published in January of 2021 is The Crooked Path to Abolition, Abraham Lincoln and the Anti-Slavery Constitution. And we have Melvin Rogers joining us as well. Melvin is Associate Professor of Political Science at Brown University. He has wide-ranging interests located largely within contemporary democratic theory and the history of American and African-American political and ethical philosophy. He is the author of a number of books, including the forthcoming book, African-American Political Thought, A Collected History, which he co-edited with Jack Turner. This book will be published by the University of Chicago Press in January of 2021. I wanna thank Lee, Jim and Melvin for joining us today and we will begin our conversation in that order, beginning with Lee. Lee?
1: Okay, can you see me? Yes, all right. Okay, thank you. Well, thank you everybody out in Zoom land for uh, attending this morning. And thank you, Corey and Dan and Shannon and Catherine, all of the organizers and participants in this conference and on this panel, because this Zoom, shift to Zoom that is, must have been a grand reorganization feat and is one in which I'm honored to participate. Um, uh, After hearing all of those introductions and realizing that I am sandwiched between David Light last night and the other members of this panel. And I'm a little bit nervous, and I um wonder what a little Cinderella story from University of Houston have to say, and I hope not to disappoint. So I'm here to talk to you about Frederick Douglass and women's rights. Not entirely lost in this apocalyptic year of 2020 it has been the centennial of the 19th Amendment granting women the right to vote. Ratified during a period much like our own of violence against immigrants, groups designated as radical, and African Americans, the success of women's suffrage also came with its own caveats of voter level of state level voter suppression, and a complicated racial history. Nevertheless, Frederick Douglass proudly included himself in that history of women's suffrage, embracing the title of "Woman's Rights Man." And I'd like to look a little more into what that meant, because you see the popular narrative of Douglas in that movement has four chapters. In the first, Elizabeth Cady Stanton introduces him to the concept of women's rights and suffrage early in his lecturing career after a female anti-slavery society meeting in 1842. In the second, he attends the 1848 Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention, the only black man to do so as far as the record shows and he supports Stanton's suffrage proposal leading to its adoption. Then that dramatic cha- turn in the third chapter, he betrays woman's cause by supporting black male suffrage over universal suffrage. But the final conciliatory fourth chapter, he returns to the fold, faithful to his dying day, literally his dying day, which Susan B. Anthony announcing his law at the International Women's Meeting, only hours after his passing. Now, while not untrue, not even a little bit untrue, this narrative, the way it's constructed, largely serves the purpose of Stan Anthony and their co-author, who is actually my neighbor, sort of, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who crafted it in the late 19th century for their own purposes in history of women's suffrage. And to be fair, Douglas did not contradict it, but he also had some rather curious silences about it. Now, historians of the 19th century women's rights and suffrage movements have critiqued this overall Stanton Anthony Gage narrative, and a significant body of literature continues to grow. As for Douglas, even with that expanding scholarship, his story has remained largely the same, with, well frankly, Very little there, there. When you write a book about Frederick Douglass and women, and when that causes most people to think, woman's rights man, you have a bit of a problem with very little there, there. However, when you write a book about women and Frederick Douglass, you also see the intersection of politics, race, and gender a little differently. The bifurcation of women's rights and African American rights into that kind of cliche of all the women are white, and all the African-Americans are men, that kind of infuses this Douglas woman's rights man narrative has obscured Douglas's engagement with women's rights outside of that movement or with women as political actors in a broader civic sphere. And here I confess that the work of Martha Jones in All Bound Up Together really helped shape my point of view, as did the large body of scholarship on women in public. And I also am in debt to the Colored Conventions Project for digitizing all of those proceedings. That was quite a valuable resource. So let's skip that 1842 meeting with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, as well as that 1848 Seneca Falls Convention, as fun as they are. So too can we skim over the follow-up meeting in Rochester two weeks later where Douglas, my other neighbor, Germaine Logan from, Roche- um, from Syracuse, and William C. Nell, printer for both the Liberator and the North Star, all three African-American men, um, they all argued for emancipation from all the artificial disabilities imposed by false custom, creeds, and codes. Instead, let's proceed to the more illuminating event in September. After Rochester, Nell and Douglas packed up and headed to Cleveland. For the national colored convention and i am using their terms there less twitter has now sometimes advertised explicitly as colored men's conventions these were all implicitly meetings for black masculine political engagement but behind the scenes black women had been a force in their communities through mutual aid reform churches abolition and really Few movements of any sort could survive without female organizational expertise. All of which had begun to beg the question, much as it had done in the anti slavery movement, should women be granted formal decision making roles at conventions? And in taking the steps to allow them to do so, would that introduce a larger question of women's rights? In Cleveland, Douglas raised the question, or rather he invited Rebecca Sanford who had attended the Rochester convention to raise the question. Then in a debate ensued as to whether an explicit provision on the matter should be included in the meeting's resolutions. And ultimately the convention agreed to amend an existing provision to clarify that all rights claimed for men should also be claimed for women. Then they closed the discussion with three cheers for women's rights, Brawl. and the cloud goes wild. For at least the next five years, at least the next five years, a cadre of five men, including Douglas, did I say five men? No, a cadre of men, including Douglas Nell Logan, James McCune Smith, Martin Delaney, and several others, um, although they were essentially in the minority, Pressed for the inclusion of women's rights resolutions in these conventions in other men's organizations as well as attended women's rights conventions. By 1853, when Rochester hosted both the National Convention of Free People of Color and the, nation- the New York's Women's Rights Convention, both attended by Douglas Logan and McCune Smith, their agendas paralleled one another in language, argument, and demand with the three men backing a provision for women's rights at the African American Convention. In other words, Douglas and these other men were part of this cross-pollination effort. They were using their privilege within the men's movement to push women's rights. Now, Douglas and its companions consistently met opposition and confronted the politics of gender within their own ranks. While the woman question had finally arisen in these black convention movements, it still proved too dangerous a topic for many. Introducing women's rights meant questioning what many considered the natural, biologically determined and God-ordained order of the world. It meant arguing against the grain of middle class respectability and therefore threatening access to that respectability. It meant questioning the basis of family and marriage in the context of attacks on Black families and marriages. And it meant opening adult Black manhood to further defamation as the harshest critics leveled the insult of Aunt Nancy and Miss Nancy at men who supported women's equality. This is not even getting into the risk that African-American women ran, all of which was seen by many as, at the very least, counterproductive to the mission of these conventions. And, by the mid-1850s, Douglass too began to regret the divisiveness of women's women's rights as a discrete issue, arguing that the movement was best kept to its own arenas. As abolitionism became more urgent and more militant, his anti-slavery rhetoric became explicitly masculine, until by the Civil War, Douglass had rather locked himself into an argument in which African-American citizenship rested on military service, a wholly male province. In doing so too, he separated the concerns of African-Americans from those of women without considering the position of those who might be both. He seemed to classify women's rights as whites, which to be fair was something that the women's rights leaders had already begun doing regardless of their own opposition to racial prejudice, whilst assuming black women under their race which seemed to relegate sexism to the inconveniences of privileged white ladies. For instance, as early as 1854, when asked the reason that he chastised Lucy Stone for speaking at a venue that excluded African Americans while he spoke in venues excluding women, he insisted that woman is not excluded from the public platform in a spirit of hate, as black men were, but were excluded as a matter of opinion. In 1869, when challenged that the violence inflicted on African-American women in the South, such as the murder of their children, was done to them because they were women, he insisted that a Southern Black woman was attacked not because she is a woman, but because she is Black. In other words, he seemed not to conceive of misogyny, nor to understand that Black women experienced violence as crimes of both race and gender at the same time. It couldn't be separated. Indeed, he seemed to implicitly understand, and this is my hypothesis, he seemed to implicitly understand that the gender-race intersection of white, of white women better than he did that of black women. Yet, to say that he abandoned women's rights in the 1850s and 60s, that his commitment to women's rights was conditional, or that he was dismissive of women's concerns, would be harshly simplistic. He welcomed and promoted both black and white women in visible roles as political actors in the fight against racism, and he defined political action quite broadly. In fact, once you start to see that, it's like everything—it becomes a hammer, and everything's a nail. Even the women's rights—even as women's rights disappeared from the Black Convention resolutions. He insisted upon the seating of women's delegates and officers, and did so over the objections that their mere service would pass the convention as a women's rights meeting. He had always shared the stage with female abolitionist speakers from early in his career. Abby Kelly, the Edmondson sisters, Anna Dickinson during the Republican campaign circuit, and at the end of his life, he backed Ida B. Wells' anti-slavery crusade when she had a very difficult time getting a hearing even from young Black men. in her World Columbian Exposition protest. He consistently gave women's writers space in all of his newspapers. And the more inclusive efforts to improve the condition and opportunities of African-Americans as a class meant that he supported education and employment for all African-American children, girls as well as boys, women as well as men. And thus he also supported the projects of black women who were so deeply involved in establishing More controversially, he and white women together challenged interracial taboos by publicly socializing as equals. And that of course came to its culmination with his marriage to Helen Pitts, a white woman. So what to make of all of this? Well, first and foremost, Douglas was a race man. That's not shocking nor original. His concerns began with race. He thought deeply and analytically about race and he prioritized race. He didn't do the same for women, but his women's rights advocacy came within that framework. And second, and I, this is, I was thinking about this because of things I'm thinking about in, you know, in trying to make this connect to what's going on today. The concept of allyship, which is something very popular today, might better be used to understand his position within the women's rights movement. Um, For instance, today we think of BIPOC members of an anti-racist movement like Black Lives Matter as those who are affected by racial oppression and have a vested interest in the movement's success. White supporters are allies. And this was Douglas's relationship to women's rights. He believed in women's rights, but he didn't have a vested interest in the same way as say his daughter Rosetta. In fact, he himself admitted that when I stood up for the rights of women self was out of the question he was disinterested which was considered a virtue douglas's weaknesses in women's rights were those of allies his experience source of oppression principles of analysis lay elsewhere but his strengths too were those of allies sharing common goals he used his influence to expand the movement into other arenas urged other men to use their own power to batter down the thick walls erected against women and rare especially for his time did not to presume to speak for women he urged he urged them to speak for themselves and he said she is her own best representative thank you
0: thank you so much lee now we'll go to
2: jim jim thank you uh, Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for maintaining that this would be a conference even after all this went on and doing it by Zoom. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to go back over a subject that I've been interested in for more than 15 years and to think aloud about some of the ways my own thinking about Frederick Douglass and the Constitution has changed. Once upon a time, I thought Frederick Douglass's dramatic reversal of opinion on the U.S. Constitution was an example of what I call soapbox syndrome. Having entered the abolitionist movement as a Garrisonian, Douglass originally accepted Garrison's extreme view of the Constitution as a pro-slavery atrocity. Then in the early 1850s, he did a complete about-face and ended up arguing exactly the opposite, that the Constitution was a radical abolitionist document. It moved, as it were, from one soapbox to another, entirely skipping over the mainstream view of the Constitution that shaped anti-slavery politics. That's a mistake. Douglass certainly shifted. and Everyone who studies him knows that. But where he landed was much closer to mainstream anti-slavery constitutionalism than I had previously thought. Douglass even admitted as much. My position now is one of reform, not of revolution, he explained on the eve of the Civil War. I would act for the abolition of slavery through the government. Douglass said that in a speech at Glasgow in March of 1860, during which he offered his most complete interpretation of the US Constitution. Early in his address, Douglass spelled out as clearly as anyone could, and few could state things as clearly as Douglass, Is fundamental disagreement with the Garrisonians. They hold the Constitution to be a slave holding instrument and will not cast a vote nor hold office and denounce all who vote or hold office, no matter how faithfully such persons labor to promote the abolition of slavery. I, on the other hand, deny that the Constitution guarantees the right to hold property in man and believe that the way to abolish slavery in America is to vote such men into power as will use their powers for the abolition of slavery. Abraham Lincoln could have said that and in so many words he did. So there are two ways to think about this. Either Douglass was closer to the mainstream of anti-slavery thought than you might think, or alternatively, mainstream anti-slavery thought was more radical than we generally recognize. My own sense is that both of those alternatives are true. Before launching into his more detailed analysis, Doug's rehearsed the familiar Garrisonian critique of the Constitution. It was based, he noted, on four specific clauses. Article I, section nine, protected the African slave trade from federal ban for 20 years. Article IV, section four, provided for the recovery of fugitive slaves. Article I, section two, counted three-fifths of the slave population for purposes of representation in the house and Article 1, Section 8 empowered the president to use military force to suppress domestic insurrections. By, by the 1850s, anti-slavery constitutionalists had long been in the habit of minimizing the significance of some of these clauses, and Douglas did the same. He pointed out that at the time the Constitution was adopted, the slave trade ban was widely understood to be an anti-slavery victory, a crucial step toward the ultimate abolition of slavery itself. Men at the time, Douglas explained, looked upon the slave trade as as the life of slavery. The abolition of the slave trade was supposed to be the certain death of slavery. Off the stream and the pond will dry up. This, Douglas pointed out, was the common notion at the time, and he was right about that. Furthermore, the slave trade provision, quote, makes the constitution anti-slavery rather than for slavery, he argued. It says to the slave states, quote, the price you will pay for coming into the american union is that the slave trade which you would carry out indefinitely out of out of the union shall be put to, the, to an end in 20 years if you come into the union or consider the war powers clause no doubt it empowered the president to suppress domestic insurrections or repel invasion douglas noted but it also authorized the federal government to emancipate slaves in the very process of suppressing insurrections quote The right to put down an insurrection carries with it the right to determine the means by which it shall be put down, Douglas explained. If it should turn out that slavery is a source of insurrection, that there is no security from insurrection while slavery lasts, why the constitution would be best obeyed by putting an end to slavery and an anti-slavery Congress would would do the very same thing." End quote. These were by 1860 familiar arguments among anti-slavery politicians and indeed the war powers clause which to become the constitutional basis of military emancipation starting a little more than a year one year after Douglas gave his speech in Glasgow Douglas's reading of the fugitive slave clause was more anomalous he claimed that because it referred only to persons held to service rather than property it applied only to indentured servants, not the slaves. Most abolitionists and anti-slavery politicians read the clause differently, though not at all in the way it was read by pro-slavery ideologues, including Chief Justice Roger Lee Pawnee. The clause did refer to slaves, anti-slavery folks agreed, but it mattered enormously that it referred to those slaves as persons rather than property. Moreover, the standard anti-slavery argument held that the Fugitive Slave Clause could not be enforced in disregard of the due process clause. That is to say, whether the fugitive slave clause was enforced by the states or by the federal government, accused fugitives were entitled to jury trials and habeas corpus. The slaveholders strenuously objected to this anti slavery reading of the Constitution, so much so that secessionists repeatedly cited it as a major justification for leaving the Union. Douglas sidestepped this reasoning entirely by claiming the Fugitive Slave Clause had nothing to do with fugitive slaves, a reading that was in many ways eccentric, or maybe not so much eccentric as clever. By deliberately reading the Constitution in the most literal way possible, Douglas was making a serious legal point about the implications of ambiguous constitutional language. The Fugitive Slave Clause does not in fact refer explicitly to fugitive slaves nor does the domestic insurrections clause refer explicitly to slave insurrections. This matters because, according to Douglas, the standard rules of legal or constitutional interpretation prohibit such language from being read as pro-slavery. Rather, if the language is unclear, Douglas argued, quote, the law must be construed strictly in favor of justice and liberty. He didn't make that doctrine up. He quoted Tony in support of it. What then did Douglas make of the notorious Three-Fifths Clause? Most opponents of slavery resented it because they said it gave the slave states extra power in the House of Representatives and the Electoral College. Lincoln, for example, argued that because the Three-Fifths Clause created a humiliating sectional discrimination, the free states had a direct interest in preventing the admission of any new slave states. But there was always a different pro-slavery reading of the Three-Fifths Clause, Constitutional Convention itself in 1787, the slave states had demanded that five-fifths of the slaves be counted, and they didn't get what they wanted. And by the 1850s, some pro-slavery Southerners were calling for the repeal of the three-fifths clause. Why? Because in a constitution that otherwise based representation on population, removing the three-fifths clause would increase rather than decrease Southern political power. Douglas played on this pro-slavery reading to argue that the three-fifths clause was a standing rebuke to the slave states, a punishment for the enslavement of millions, a built-in constitutional incentive for the slave states to increase their political power by abolishing slavery. According to Douglas, quote, a black man in a free state is worth two-fifths more than a black man in a slave state. Therefore, instead of encouraging slavery, the constitution encourages freedom, by giving an increase of two-fifths of political power to the free over the slave states. Clearly this was not the way most opponents of slavery read the three-fifths clause. By contrast, Douglas stood firmly with the anti-slavery mainstream in his denunciation of the alleged right of property in man. And his reading is now supported by recent evidence that the references to slaves as persons throughout throughout the Constitution was not a euphemistic evasion by the founders who were embarrassed by their own compromises, but a deliberate refusal by the anti-slavery voices at the Constitutional Convention to sanction property in men anywhere in the text. In this light, Douglas's standard, which would require an unambiguous constitutional protection of property rights in slaves, is all the more compelling, quote, if there are two ideas more distinct in their character and essence than one another, he argued, those ideas are of persons and property, men and things. Now when it is proposed to transpose, transform persons into property and men into beasts of burden, I demand that the law that completes such a purpose shall be expressed with irresistible clearness. The thing must not be led to, left to inference but must be done in plain English. Any anti-slavery politician could have said the same thing. Indeed, it was in the 1860 Republican Party platform. And yet this only scratches the surface of the anti-slavery constitutional tradition that Douglass eventually embraced. At least since the Missouri Compromise, excuse me, at least since the Missouri crisis, for example, a majority of Northern congressmen held that the constitution empowered Congress to ban slavery from the territories, empowered Congress to require a territory to abolish slavery as a condition of admission to the Union, and empowered Congress to abolish slavery and the slave trade in Washington, D.C. Many argued that the Constitution empowered Congress to ban not only the Atlantic slave trade, but the domestic coastwise slave trade as well. In short, there was much more to the antebellum debate over slavery in the Constitution than the three or four clauses most historians focus on. And so anti-slavery constitutionalists began with a simple question. In the constitutional debate over slavery and freedom, why don't the clauses protecting freedom carry at least as much weight as the clauses referring to slavery? After all, there are far more clauses protecting freedom. It came down to a simple precept repeated endlessly among anti-slavery politicians. Within the plain text of the Constitution, they said, freedom is the rule and slavery the exception. One indication of this already mentioned is the way opponents of slavery insisted that the fugitive slave clause could not be enforced as if there were not also a due process clause in the Constitution. Here are the words. No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. No person. And surely it matters, at least it mattered to anti-slavery people, that slaves are referred to only as persons. As Douglas put it, the slaveholders go everywhere else but the Fifth Amendment, looking for proof that the Constitution does not say what it plainly says. No person can be deprived of their freedom without due process of law. And what about the preamble? It flatly declares that the purpose of the Constitution is to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Douglas quoted this as well in his Glasgow speech, noting that the slaveholders say that the Negroes are not included within the benefits specified in the preamble, but it is not said by the Constitution itself. Again, this was mainstream anti-slavery constitutionalism. It was also the constitutionalism embraced by a majority of abolitionists. Once upon a time, I thought that William Lloyd Garrison had got it right when he burned the Constitution in public. Now seems to me that when he stepped up onto that soapbox, Garrison made himself an outlier rather than a representative of the abolitionist movement. Instead, what Manisha Sinha calls abolitionist constitutionalism, the genuinely radical reading of the Constitution by men like William Goodell, Lysander Spooner, Garrett Smith, was at least as popular among abolitionists. It was certainly more influential and as such, much closer to the mainstream of anti-slavery constitutionalism. To be sure, when Frederick Douglass claimed that the three-fifths clause punished rather than rewarded the South, when he denied that the fugitive slave clause referred to fugitive slaves, he was saying things that no anti-slavery politician I know of said. But when he denied that the Constitution protected a right of property in man, when he invoked the Fifth Amendment's right of due process, and when he cited the blessings of liberty to promote from promised by the preamble, Douglass stood squarely in the mainstream of anti-slavery politics. All of which is to say that when Frederick Douglass switched sides, he was list- enlisting in a vast army of anti-slavery men and women who, even as he spoke at Glasgow in 1860, were poised to take control of the federal government and put slavery once and for all on a course of ultimate extinction. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Jim. Now we'll hear from Melvin.
3: Right, thank you. So I wanna thank, um, Uh, Dan for the invitation, and I wanna thank my other panelists. So the title of my uh, talk today is Faith and uh, Political uh, Transformation. So let me just jump into this. Let me begin with two passages, one from Martin Delaney and the other uh, from Frederick Douglass. In a May 1852 letter to William Lord Garrison, Delaney writes the following, quote, I'm not in favor of caste nor separation of brotherhood the brotherhood of mankind, and would as willingly live among white men as Black if I had equal possession and enjoyment of privileges. If there were any probability, any probability, I should be willing to remain in the country fighting and struggling on. But I must admit that I have no hopes in this country, no confidence in the American people. This letter comes one month after the publication of Delaney's magisterial text, The Condition, Elevation, immigration, and destiny of the colored people of the United States. Douglass responds a year later to this sentiment in May of 1853. Here are Douglas's words. We don't object to the colonizationists because they desire the prosperity of Liberia, but it is because, like Brother Delaney, they have not sufficient faith in the people of the United States. To believe that the black man can ever get justice at their hands on American so- soil. There are two themes I would like to highlight from these passages. The first is the slide from hope in Delaney's thinking to the language of faith in Douglass's. The second bears on the invocation of the idea of the people that we see or that we hear in Douglass's uh, uh, response. And I will spend my time today thinking out loud about the themes of hope, faith, and ultimately pessimism in these two figures. The language of hope and faith are not synonyms. Hope, as Patrick Shade notes, is an active commitment to the desirability and realizability of a certain end. For Delaney, hope is tied to confidence in bringing to fruition what one desires. As he suggests, hope stands within the world of probabilities informed by facts that provide indications of what is possible. We must abandon, he says, in chapter 16 of Condition, all vague theory and look at facts as they really are viewing ourselves, referring to black people, and our true position in the body politic. But he appears to take those facts, at least in 1852, to be exhaustive not only of what is but what may be. In contrast to hope, faith, or so I shall tentatively say, is a passionate conviction, conterminous with a vision of life or object not in existence. Now, both hope and faith are tied to something not yet in existence, but the source of difference between the two is that hope marks levels of confidence in achieving what is desired, while faith is the expression of a loving, even a difficult commitment, precisely because there is no confidence to be had at least based on some facts of the matter and its realization. This, at least, appears to be one take on how these two concepts can fit together. Delaney not only dispenses with hope because there is no evidence to sustain it, but more significantly, he is without faith that there is a narrative of American and African-American life that can provoke whites to change, to dispense with the status they seemingly enjoy by virtue of being white. But why precisely is Delaney without faith? I think the answer to this relates to the three markers of what I will call Delaney's pessimism. The first is what I will tentatively call the general burden of historical inegalitarianism. This is how he captures it in chapter one, condition of many classes in Europe considered, quote, that there have been in all ages and in all countries, classes of people who have been deprived of equal privileges. These are historical facts that cannot be controverted Now, Delaney might just be offering us a descriptive claim about the past, but I'm not sure that's exactly what's going on here. And this is because this claim about inegalitarianism comes in a chapter that bears the first substantive word of his title, the word condition. For Delaney, condition denotes the particular mode of a person or thing, the manner of the person or thing in question. Since he speaks of an egalitarianism as a condition of all ages and all countries, and given how the term functions throughout the text, there seems to be no good reason to believe this condition will disappear anytime soon, or dare I say, at all. It seems to me that what Delaney is really doing, is ontologizing historical facts as the immovable markers of human nature. It is not that the facts cannot be controverted, as he says, because they are past, but because they define the temporal fields of the past, the present, and the future. That is, human nature is the kind of nature, when understood socially, that generally produces political and ethical hierarchies to organize human relations. This is, for Delaney, the human condition. Now this leads, I think, to the second marker of Delaney's pessimism. He understands the practice of racial domination as defining what American society really is in itself. Racial domination in the United States is a localized manifestation of the general burdens of historical inegalitarianism. This is why he says, as I quoted earlier, we must take the facts as they really are. And of course, Delaney had much going for this idea in 1852, especially with the recent passage of the fugitive slave law two years earlier, in addition to the general state of Black people, both in the South and in the North. Finally, the burden of historical inegalitarianism and in a specific manifestation, and the facts of racial domination in the United States appear to be effectively institutionalized via Delaney's positivism, and let me explain this. Political life, Delaney thinks, is merely the attitudinal expression of the underlying ethos or culture of a people. And he thinks that the, and these are his words, the badge of degradation ascribed to Blackness and that circulates in the cultural life of America is instantiated in its political and legal institutions. And he also thinks the identity of white Americans is formed in contrast to their darker counterparts. To transform American society, one must be willing to destroy what he calls the badge of degradation. But this transformation must also involve a willingness by white Americans to destroy the legal and customary badge of superiority they now flaunt. They must be willing to destroy, he argues, who they take themselves to be. And this would mean, Delaney tells us, the overthrow of the American polity. Now, this way of thinking informs his analysis of the future of slave law and condition. He focuses on this law not because he believes positive law, the primary side of justice, but because he takes the idea of law to be expressive of the underlying ethos or spirit of a people. Delaney's analysis turns on a distinction he makes in the early part of condition. And there, in that early part, he says that the domain of moral law is where, quote, the sense and feeling of right and justice lies. This, he tells us, is to be distinguished from the physical law or the law of the political state. The moral law, he goes on, need not necessarily guide positive law. Or to put it in the language of legitimacy, and I think this is appropriate here, procedurally, if a law emerges from the polity's decision procedure, let's say through the requisite number of those appointed to Congress voting for it, it is legitimate to that extent. Legitimacy, as Delaney sees it, is about the proper relationship between the positive law and those on whose behalf the law is issued and over whom, and over whom by or as determined by the Constitution. This account leads Delaney to describe the future of slave law as both a legitimate expression of America and also a monstrosity of the polity. And here is the upshot of Delaney's positivism as the final leg of his pessimism. Delaney connects the political foundations of American society to its largely white male voting population, and he then uses the outcomes of their decisions as communicating who the citizenry really is and in what their commitments really consist. For him, If the constitution expresses the concrete existence of the people, its ethical life or its cultural life, and is the only source of power, then there can be no other conception of the people that is not fixed by the political instruments that claim to speak in the people's name. Hence he says, quote, we, referring to black people, are politically not of them, but aliens to the laws and political privileges of this country. These are truths fixed facts that quaint theory and exhaustive moralizing fall harmlessly before, End quote. Now, all of this contrasts quite sharply with Frederick Douglass. Firstly, in his 1852 address, the address we all like to go to, Douglass holds fast to the idea that he can put the revolutionary spirit of 1776 in the service of a racially just society that has never before defined American life. And for Douglas, the revolutionary spirit is the power of making and remaking the people what we call constituent power. And he thinks that inhabiting this revolutionary spirit and putting it in the service of a racially just society will be so compelling that his fellows will want to take it up. And this partly explains, or it seems to me, to explain the source of Douglass's invocation of faith. Now, admittedly, sometimes it is Douglas's religious commitments at work informing his faith, writing, for example, in the wake of the Dred Scott decision, he tells us that Justice Taney, quote, may decide and decide again, but he cannot reverse the decision of the Most High. He cannot change the essential nature of things, making evil good and good evil. Other times, it is Douglas's vision of human nature that underwrites his faith, quote, while man is constantly liable to do evil, he tells us in 1851, still, he is still capable of apprehending and pursuing that which is good, end quote. But more consistently, I think, it is faith in a specific idea of America. Whatever is hoped for seems to have no other ground than this idea itself. Returning to his Fourth of July address, he writes, quote, I therefore leave off where I began with hope while drawing encouragement from the Declaration of Independence and the great principles it contains." End quote. Here, hope draws encouragement from something, the idea of the Declaration of Independence. But notice that the something in question is wholly normative in character, rather than empirical in Delaney's sense of things. Douglas repeats the sentiment in the Dred Scott speech of 1857. But Douglas. Hope and faith come together in a way that contrasts sharply with how they came together for Delaney and mirrors Hebrew 11.1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This, I think, gives us the formal character of Douglass' faith. First, faith is a vision of political and ethical life that is at variance with the community he inhabits what he says in the 4th of July, address that America fails to be true to. Second, faith is a substantive vision he hopes will command allegiance because he believes it is a vision of life in which all can find a home. And then third, the substantive vision of his faith is something for which he is willing to fight to bring into existence. There is an important epistemological difference, I think, between Delaney and Douglas worth noting. In other words, there is a difference, and I want to move a little slowly here, there is a difference between a belief that is a conviction that some end should be supreme over conduct, say, for example, belief that a racially just society in the United States is possible, there's a difference between that and a belief that some object exists as truth for the intellect. Say, for example, the sun will rise in the east and set in the west, where that claim is underwritten by a constellation of facts about the rotational axis of the Earth and the orbital path of the Earth. For Douglas, the first kind of belief, the one he holds given the conditions of African Americans, must function as a precondition for political engagement in the first place. In other words, the claim runs ahead of the evidence needed to sustain it in a way that the second belief does not. Now, I don't know that the faith holders, such as Douglas, I don't know that they are naive, Douglas, for example, seemed just as realistic about America's past and present as it related to race relations, although he did not engage in the kind of ontologizing of history that you see in Delaney. In fact, Douglass might be thought to hold a true realism for just this reason. As far as I can tell, Douglass was clear that America's past was bleak, and he seemed quite clear. The prospect for the future was dim. America, he said in the 4th of July address, is false to the past false to the present, and solemnly binds herself to be false to the future. So Douglass's faith, given that statement, was not reasonable at all. But perhaps this is the unstated significant point about pushing for political and ethical transformation. A reasonable man, Toni Morrison tells us in her essay, Moral Inhabitants, adjusts to his environment. An unreasonable man does not, end quote or to avoid the declarative, we might put it in the form of a question. When has transformation of the political or ethical kind ever come about because of reasonable people? So what then, and here I'm coming to a close. So what then of the idea of the people Douglas invoked against Delaney, the idea of the people that Delaney doesn't have faith in? When Douglas appear, uh, appeals to the revolutionary spirit of 1776, he's appealing to the logic of legitimacy that is itself dependent on openness. Legitimacy is not a way of talking about adherence to a de facto polity, in contrast to Delaney, but a way of marking the principle of invention and reinvention that can connect what the polity is to what it may become. And to do this within the background or within the boundaries of the background norms with which the polity is familiar, Douglas is thus asking his fellows to channel the spirit of 76 so as to give life to a vision of themselves not yet in existence. And he is treating the people as not that thing specified finally by the Constitution, but as an aspiration struggling to inhabit the world." There is, final paragraph, there is, I think, insight here. I'm often struck by the claim that white supremacy is fundamental to the polity and that anti-blackness defines America. I'm struck, struck not because these things are not true, they are true, but because they are often presented as exhausting the traditions we find ourselves living. Those that advance it often sound like Delaney. We must confront the facts as they really are. But the question of what America really is, Douglas suggests defies articulation, even as we struggle to say something substantive about our ethical and political identity. And this is simply because we can't get on with the business of living without figuring out where we should go and who we ought to be, without narrating some story about the past to which we belong, but worrying too much about offering the true description or final narrative of the past may miss the point. We ask these questions of the past, who are we really, less to understand our identity once and for all, and more to aid us in making decisions about who we should become. So when Delaney framed his inquiries, having figured out what America really is, what its condition really is, the struggle against racial domination could only appear as external or alien to America's ethical and political life. Struggle could not appear, as Douglass hoped it would, as those parts of the richness and beauty of American life trying to win the day. Thank you.
0: I want to thank each of the presenters, uh, Lee, Jim, and Melvin. Each of you have given us a lot to think about in terms of the evolution of Douglas's thinking consistent with the evolution of scholarship on Douglas. Lee reminding us over a 50 year period that this woman's rights man occupied many spaces within the spectrum and often the dominant narrative that we have of Douglas sort of pigeonholes him to one particular moment and how we begin to imperialize that moment and instead of seeing the protein nature and context of his thinking on women's rights in relation to the struggle of African-Americans and African-American women uh, for political and social rights. Jim, you give us a deeply personal story about how your view of Douglas has changed going to his 1860 speech on the Constitution in Glasgow reminding us that the sharp division that we think of in terms of how Douglass moved from pro-slavery to anti-slavery has many permutations in between and that the anti-slavery position that he articulates is one consistent and one deeply informed by the ways in which he understands the language of the Constitution and the evolving uh, political landscape uh, around persons and property that, that he views in 1860. And Melvin, you challenge us with your view of Douglas, with in conversation with Delaney and the context in which we understand the possibilities of political transformation. Beginning to think through the logics of hope with Delaney and faith with Douglas interspersed by their continual evolution and thinking around a political pessimism about the American experiment, not a pessimism that is faithless or hopeless, but one that is hopeful and faithful to a particular political vision of what American democracy can be. In many ways, you've opened up our conversation today. And what I wanna do in the moments that we have remaining is to offer each of you a bit of time to reflect on not only your comments, but your comments in light of uh, the comments of our colleagues, Melvin and Jim and Lee, uh, have you begin to think about your own work. Perhaps we could begin to think of Douglas as the ultimate pragmatist, an individual, who has begun to change his ideas, uh, who begins to rethink his ideas in light of the changing configurations of culture, society, and politics. And I'll open it up to, we can begin with either Lee or Melvin or Jim, we can just jump
2: right in. Melvin. I'm happy Um, to start. And and I appreciate, um, I have to say, I have to say I'm impressed, Corey, with uh, with skillfully you summed us up. Um, I think I want to invoke what David Blythe said last night, if I heard him correctly, that Douglas is in some ways the ultimate principled pragmatist, that I think there is a tendency to think of pragmatism as the alternative to being principled, and I think there they're not necessarily the case. What um, what impresses me about Douglas still, uh, and 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 my impression is sharpened by uh, Melvin's paper, um, which I really enjoyed, is that Douglas took. Douglas assumed that that the United States was not one thing. That, that, that Americans aren't people who love freedom. The Americans aren't people who love equality and Americans aren't just people committed to white supremacy. There are white supremacists and there are egalitarians. There are pro-slavery folks and anti-slavery folks. He jumped into an, a massive national debate and took sides. So he was assuming that there isn't one thing uh, that Americans agreed on. He was taking an interpretation of the Declaration of Independence that was fundamentally different from the. the you know, Jeff, Jefferson Davis invoked the Declaration of Independence as well, and so did Stephen Douglas. And they all saw different things, and read it in different ways. And he, his reading of that Declaration, was a provocation was also a position he was taking in the context of a national debate and and so uh, uh, I, I, just as i I tend to resist singular notions of what America is, I tend to resist uh, uh, I, I tend to pull back from the idea that if you 're a pragmatist, you also aren't an idealist um, that you can't be both
3: so um I mean, so, so very briefly, you know, we have protests uh, taking place uh, in this country um, in, in Oregon and in Washington and in New York City. And we have to ask a question about, you know, uh, what is that space that the protesters are occupying? What are the conditions such that that space exists? And what Douglas wanted to insist upon is that the conditions that make that space possible, right, is a condition of openness. And that that condition of openness is actually what allows Americans to imagine themselves anew, and in fact is the source of what legitimizes the whole damn thing, right? And part of what he was trying to insist upon in response to Delaney, and Delaney doesn't go away at the end of this argument that I made. Delaney's is still haunting us now. And, 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 and we have to attend to Delaney and reread him. But what he wanted to insist or say to Delaney is, is that we do not simply want to take the sort of, the sort of institutional expression of, of, of republicanism at, at, that, at that time, the language that was in circulation, uh, as the beginning and end of what the polity is about. Because its legitimacy, legitimacy sits upon this principle of openness, um, which uh, uh, allows us to imagine anew, right? So that's why D- Douglas is always working with two kinds of accounts of the people. There's the people that is, that is actively described per the Constitution, and then there's the people not yet. It's a vision of the people that is, that is, that is an aspiration. And if we sort of keep that in view, then one of the things we'll have to reckon with, and I think Douglas reckoned with this, is that we are always in a battle over the soul of uh, the American polity, over what or how we ought to understand it. Um, but we should understand that battle as being housed within um, America, as being what it is about, rather than as 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 Delaney and others would want to say it um, out of it, kind of banging at the banging at the door and Delaney's saying, don't bang, go elsewhere, right?
0: Lee, would you like to offer us some uh, closing thoughts?
1: Um, I'm thinking, so, <laughs> um, and I don't think very well on my feet, uh, but, turn, and I'm not as eloquent as the other speakers here, so, um, but I will say that, yeah, I mean, the women's rights piece, they're talking constitutional and so forth, The women's rights piece does fit in here, and when I think about, just, I quite often address crowds like at Seneca Falls that are wanting to hear women's rights and the heroic role that he plays, and then they're always asking why did he betray them, and, um, and what you see in there is a bit um like what jim was talking about with the pragmatism and does he make this about face turn on um the constitution and what it seems is you know because he is a race man and he sees things from race but also that there is um this operational level of politics having having to work from the outside in and um and now i'm just letting words fall out of my mouth because they're, they're working in my head as I'm talking. But there is this operational politics that does mean you have to make choices about what you can get done now, what you have to do to move forward now and what priorities show up now. And that's, that's what I see him doing, but that doesn't mean you can't do other things at the same time that do move you towards that end. So when I'm talking about him seeming like he's pushing women to the side, he's talking about, we have this issue that is coming to a head right now that has to be taken care of, but we can also do this, but it can't distract here. And now I'm just doing word salad. So um, Corey, you you succinctly put my paper very well and it, that in writing about him with women, it, it gave this point of view of him that was far less compartmentalized. That his politics with women, his politics um, against slavery, that employed women in ways that were just simply as walking down the street with the Griffith sisters, that could be so agitating. It became a whole cloth. It could even, um, even Anna, who's usually the shadowy figure, she becomes this partner as just simply by being is domestic becomes this whole political force against racism and um and so that made him to me a very exciting figure and it opened up a whole new arena of looking at him with women as political actors okay i'll shut up now because
0: Thank you so much, Lee. Uh, I really enjoyed your paper and Jim, I enjoyed yours and Melvin as well. Each of you have provided us a lot to think about uh, In thinking of and considering Frederick Douglass as a, pos- as a provocation to considering what are the political possibilities in a moment of deep antagonism and deep angst. What you've demonstrated through each of your papers is that Douglass met that challenge in the 19th century. He did not stand still in his politics, nor did he stand still in his thinking. And it is that aspect of Douglas that continues to challenge us today as we wrestle with the question that David ends his justly-famed biography of Douglas: what shall we make of our Douglas in our own time? I want to thank each of you for enabling us to continue to think with you and wrestle with you on this Frederick Douglass, a Douglass that's a woman's rights man, a Douglass that is able to change his mind and his constitutional vision from a pro slavery constitution to an anti slavery constitution, and a Douglass that wrestles deeply and complexly with the ideas of his contemporaries, particularly Martin Delaney, and forging an identity for America, and American democracy that is not foreclosed by its current conditions, but is open to numerous and other possibilities. Thank you all for joining us for today's conversation. And I'll turn, send it over back to Dan, who will direct us for the rest of today's conversations on Frederick Douglass. Dan?
2: And hear the cheering now. It's a terrific panel, Corey. Thanks for leading it. Jim and Lee and Melvin, outstanding remarks. Um, and thank you all for being part of this. So we will resume at one at, o'clock uh, uh, with our next panel. We'll take a little break and then we'll pick up with uh, Julian Hader, uh, who's our moderator of statesmanship in Frederick Douglass' life and thought. Thank you. I'll see you at one o'clock.